Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. God, like, welcome back, prom party. Like, totally, for real, fuck off. (laughs) Totally. I think he says fuck you. Maybe he says fuck off. I I don't don't remember, remember, but, like, I love that line, because I'm pretty sure he's making fun of the way she talks, but the way he talks make it just sounds like that's how he talks. (laughs) (laughs) He's definitely mocking her and her Val speak, but it is really funny to hear just Nick Cage be like, yeah, for sure, totally. Fuck you. (laughs) So I'm sure that you noticed based on the title and the fact that I'm going to be leaning very heavily into my Val speak because I don't have to hide it for this episode. Mm -hmm. But Valley Girl is turning 40 this year. And Valley Girl is old enough that we have now already had a remake some 40-ish years later. Okay, so like we're not going to talk about the remake all that much really at all. But I do just want the world to know that before we got the remake that we did that has um, the the actress from Happy Death Day in the lead, which I love, um, Logan Paul was supposed to be in that movie and then he posted the Suicide Forest video and they were like, nope, just kidding. You can go fuck yourself. And that's really funny to me. I appreciate that because fuck Logan Paul. Uh, I I mean, I haven't seen the Valley Girl remake anyway because I've heard it's fine. Yeah, it's a but musical. I, I have I have this Valley Girl, mm-hmm. so I'm good. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this title is one that has been requested quite a bit, and we knew we were saving it for its its 40th anniversary. And I'm really excited to talk about this movie. There's definitely a lot to say. And today's synopsis comes from our dear friend, the departed Mike McBeard or McPadden, from his teen movie Hell Book. The Romeo and Juliet of 80s teen comedies note the initials of lead characters Randy, Nicolas Cage, and Julie, Deborah Foreman. Valley Girl arose from a pop culture craze set off by, of all trendsetters, Frank Zappa and his daughter Moon Unit Zappa. The family duo scored Papa Frank's only top 40 hit with 1982's Valley Girl. It peaked at number 32. A blast of bass over which Moon imitates the aggressive airheaded tone and rapid fire slang of her peers from the San Fernando Valley. Suddenly, Val speak phrases such as gag me with a spoon and brody to the max. Entered the lexicon virulently enough to warrant a youth exploitation movie cash-in. Back in 1983, a Porky-style cavalcade of pranks and perversions titled Valley Girl would not have barfed anyone out. Impressive then that writers Wayne Crawford and Andrew Lane instead teamed with director Martha Coolidge to deliver a heartfelt, star-crossed high school romance that also supplies ample hilarity. 
I had no idea that apparently Frank Zappa is responsible for the rise of Valley Girl culture. Isn't that ridiculous to That's think about? That's so weird. <laughs> and the thing is, I was singing that song before we sat down to record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you were just like, yeah, the way you're doing it, I was like, well, it's not like Hollywood. It's like Valley Girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic to think about that, that, you know, that song kind of brought this social phenomenon, the social dialect into the mainstream populace. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that meant we needed to have a movie about it. And Valley Girl comes out in 83. This is a really interesting time period. Um, but I am first curious, when did you see Valley Girl for the first time? I caught it on TV. It, it was around. I don't mm-hmm. know what channel or when, but I just remember it was routinely around. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Gotcha. Yeah, for me, this is this is another sleepover staple, as is the case with most of the movies that we talk about on this. This, this is a very good sleepover movie, I think. It has sleepover scenes. It does. It does. Do you, do you also dance around in your underwear with your friends and have a beach umbrella in your room? Never had the beach umbrella. Definitely did dance in our underwear because okay. it's fun. It's freeing. Yeah. Um, but I remember the big appeal to this was, oh, my God, did you guys know that Nicolas Cage was in a teen movie? Mm-hmm. Like, that was always kind of the setup and it's like the face-off guy or I guess at that age it probably was the national treasure guy yeah but either way it was like oh that's weird and then I remember watching it and being like why is he kind of hot because he's weird looking in this but also kind of hot I could never really wrap my finger about it until much later where it's like oh because he kind of looks like a hard femme lesbian in this movie and I find that attractive the 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 Nicolas Cage of this like this is during the very brief window of his period where it's like what if we try to try to turn him into a like a teen dreamboat like a heartthrob character yeah Yeah. does not a really good look on him but it works in this movie even though he's like the best version of David Schwimmer in this movie (laughs) yeah um but like oh my god the version of him when he goes to like the health food store like that outfit and like his hair looks just the right way and also like he shakes dad's hand and like dad can give like dap and stuff like that I'm like okay Uh uh-huh like yeah he's cool he went to Woodstock (laughs) with his wife that is only an actress nine years older than the woman playing her daughter. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Love you, Colleen Camp. You're great. Good good to see Colleen Camp back on the show for the second time. Yeah. Uh, for those that don't know, the woman who plays Julie's mom is Colleen Camp. Uh, most of you know her as Yvette from Clue, mm-hmm. but she's also Tracy Flick's mom in Election. So it's fascinating that the same actress who plays a mom of a teenager in 1983 plays a mom of a teenager in 1999. It's so strange. <laughs> also, Nicolas Cage, second time on this show, too, because he's just like a background character as Nicholas Coppola the year before. Yeah, he's this is his his star on the rise. This is his breakthrough role um, that like really kind of puts him on the map. Obviously, mm-hmm. later roles like Raising Arizona would be like, oh, you can like he actually would do very act. well once he got to the 90s, especially. Yeah, but this is this is the one that everyone's like, oh, who's this? Who's this Nicholas Cage guy? We should mm-hmm. keep an eye on him. And yeah. I, I love that for him. Um, so because this is a 40th anniversary Let's dive back to 1983. What kind of context do you have for the the landscape of Valley Girl? So we've dabbled a little bit in this time period before. So I'm going to quickly sort of scan over the sex comedy landscape like prior to, to Valley Girl. So you have Animal House in 1978. It's one of the top 10 highest grossing films of that entire decade. Mm-hmm. You have Porky's coming out in late 1981. It goes on to be, I think, like the fifth highest grossing movie of 1982. Mm-hmm. And because of those, you have just a landscape of really nasty, vile sex comedies for like five years. Mm-hmm. But by this point, like in a post-Fast Times world, we're starting to get like a little bit more teen sentimentality where teen films are actually like four teens. 
But we haven't gotten to John Hughes yet. We haven't gotten to John Hughes yet. So I think 83 is kind of the first year where you start to see like multiple bona fide classics of like teen cinema Mm -hmm. and not like outliers or something that like if you're in the know of. Mm -hmm. So like this year is where you have like The Outsiders, which underperformed, but like is very, very influential in hindsight. very much so. Flashdance, which is very much the MTV aesthetic, which MTV launched like... 10 months before Valley Girl started filming. Mm-hmm. You have uh, War Games, which is Matthew Broderick's going to like, it's going to launch him on to do much bigger things later on in the decade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have, you still have like some integration of sex comedies that are very successful, like Risky Business. Mm-hmm. And one of the best movies ever made, Angel. Yeah. So all of that's going on. And the MTV thing, I think, is such a huge part of this movie. And it's like it being the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at like the party, you have you have people dressed like they're, they're you know, igloo coolers. Mm-hmm. You have people in like <laughs> pop collars. But as MTV starts to take over the nation over the course of this decade and you get like the 80s that people think of as they think of the 80s. Like when right. you think they of think blockbuster of like, 80s. They think of like Olivia Newton-John 80s and hair metal 80s. Or like... Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson, like superstar 80s. That's flashy, what you think flashy of. 80s. Yes. Yeah. This part of the 80s, people tend to think of as like, oh, well, it's like it's, it's new wave bands. Mm-hmm. Like it's dudes with doofy hair and silly, uh, and silly outfits. Mm-hmm. And like that's not totally incorrect, but like it's really unfair to sort of associate new wave as like a genre with just like synthesizers and stupid hair Mm -hmm. because like the reality of it is early MTV and early new wave it's not just like Gary Newman and Thomas Dolby Mm -hmm. it's like still guitar driven as we see in this movie Mm -hmm. it's a bunch of art school weirdos like Sparks who are in who are featured in this movie I think they're the first licensed song that plays after the opening credits yeah I think they have two songs on the soundtrack yes which like also, if you've not seen the Sparks Brothers documentary that Edgar Wright did, watch that too. It's phenomenal. It's great. <laughs> Spar- Sparks are like the original art school weirdos mm-hmm. of like I love New that. Wave, <laughs> but like they started in the late '60s. Yeah, they're great. Like Southern California, <laughs> Southern California's finest, the Sparks Brothers. So I think when you like think of like the '80s, nothing about this feels distinctly like what you think of as the 80s. It's a bit more rough and tumble. It's rough around the edges. It's not sleek and shiny in a way that we would associate with like new wave acts like, I don't know, the Human League or something. It's a little mm-hmm. more, it's like more of like the shitty version of like the Flock of Seagulls video that's just one rotating camera. Mm-hmm. And also Flock of Seagulls is like a guitar driven band. People don't realize that because they're like, well, they must have a synthesizer. And I'm like, they do. He plays one note, mm-hmm. but that's a guitar band. And also that first album rules. Mm-hmm. So Valley Girl coming along, it's like, the right place at the right time for all of this right before it becomes unrecognizable. Agreed completely. And I think that's why this movie is so beloved and so perfect because, again, teen movies are time capsules and this captures a very specific point of culture in what was going on because everything is about to change. Mm -hmm. And this is like the best documented example. Of course, speaking of generalities, this is a very specific white, like, Southern California area, but it is captured perfectly. Oh, we have a lot to say about about whiteness and the valley later on in this episode. Oh, yeah, we do. But, like, even if you want to think about, like, that, the, the class of that all, this is New Wave, which, like, New Wave is not a genre. It's more of just, like, hey. It's a this, sound. It's, it's, a, it's a sound. It's more of, like, just was describing a specific time rather than a genre that then became a genre where it's, like, cool, you had punk, then you have post-punk, and then New Wave was kind of, like, 
a, a mixture of post-punk and what we would later call new wave. It was a little bit of a catch-all for a lot of shit. But that new wave sound is going to eventually leave the punk scenes. It's going to go mainstream. Mm-hmm. All of the kids who wear pop collars and shit like that in this movie are probably going to start appropriating new wave fashion in some capacity, even if it like takes till Duran Duran for them to do it. Yeah, totally. So before we totally. <laughs> before we dive in any deeper, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. This message is for anybody in the greater Cleveland metropolitan area. Join the Short Sweet Film Fest from March 1st through the 5th for their 12th annual festival showcasing bite-sized films from up-and-coming filmmakers at the local, national, and international levels. The Short Sweet Film Fest exclusively features films under 40 minutes and curates content for all palettes, including specialized programming for horror, animation, and queer cinema. The festival will be held at the Atlas Cinemas in Shaker Square, Cleveland, Ohio, with tickets starting at only $15. To purchase tickets or get more information about the festival, please visit shortsweetfilmfest.com. Hey there, prom party. We have some fun things planned for this month outside of just the main show. Over on the Patreon, we have some episodes coming up for Harold and Maude for Valentine's Day. 40 Days and 40 Nights for a little bit of romance and because it's Lent and that seems appropriate. But more importantly, Shannon Sossaman's there and we could all use more of her in our lives. We're going to be doing a musical milestones episode on Evanescence, which BJ has been dying to talk about for pretty much for the entirety we've been doing that segment. Because in case you didn't know, BJ had three separate Amy Lee posters hanging in her childhood bedroom. Uh, We're continuing to work our way through Freaks and Geeks. We're doing episodes four, five, and six this month, as well as something new we have planned for coming to the Patreon this month. So many people send us requests every single week. So we're launching a suggestion box. So if you want to join the Patreon at even the lowest tier of $1, you'll get access to that. And you can just sort of anonymously say like, hey, here's some stuff that I would really like it if you covered. In addition to all of that, We've also got the playlist, we have our monthly newsletter, and access to all of the awesome stuff we have in the back catalog. And as always, we totally understand if you're not able to support the Patreon. Just go ahead and give us a rating if you can, and shout us out to any of your friends who you think might might like, like what we offer. Thank you so much, and now back to the movie. So typically we start by talking about the main character, but before we do that, I really want to do a little bit of a highlight on Martha Coolidge who directed this. So another segment in the Teen Movie Hell book is an essay called Modern Girls, 21st Century Filmmakers on Adolescent Sex. It's Mm -hmm. written by Katie Reif, who is an amazing, amazing critic that I adore. And this essay is basically about all of the women directors of the 80s and 90s who put out sex movies. So like Poison Ivy, uh, Turn Me On, Slipper Party Massacre 2, and of course, Valley Girl. Mm -hmm. And in it, she talks a little bit about Martha Coolidge. And this woman's career is fascinating and I think really sets the tone for why Valley Girl is the way that it is. Mm -hmm. The same social norms centered horny boys as the audience for all things teen on screen, which makes sense for Animal House and Porky's, but less so for Valley Girl. Nevertheless, director Martha Coolidge has since said in interviews that distributor Atlantic Releasing insisted on giving an exploitation edge to her kicky 80s update on Romeo and Juliet, telling her that the 1983 rom-com had to include at least four well-lit shots of bare breasts if she wanted to get into theaters. 
She agreed. Ironically, Coolidge's attempt at a straight-up sex comedy romp, The Joy of Sex, the following year, is one of the least remembered in her 80s filmography, paling next to the romance of Valley Girl and geeky sci-fi comedy of Real Genius. Also little remembered but worthy of rediscovery is Coolidge's feature debut, Not a Pretty Picture, 1976. It's an ahead-of-its-time hybrid of documentary and fiction exploring the aftermath of date rape from an era when many didn't recognize it as rape at all. Dude, that's hardcore. It's so hardcore. So, like, this is a director whose very first movie was like, hey, did you know that even if you're on a date with a girl, if she doesn't want to have sex with you, she doesn't have to. And if you do, you're a piece of shit. Uh Like, knowing that that is the woman who is behind the camera of this movie makes so much sense. And it also makes like the the mandatory moments of nudity like eg daily is nude in this movie there's Mm -hmm. also like weird sexual tension with like a mom and a teenage boy that's like like, cut in the movie loses nothing yeah like it it changes nothing i I, i'm a little bit more defensive of eg daily being nude oh no no that that narratively that makes sense there's a there's a reason for that it has proper building for it it actually ties into her character like it's vital to her character in this movie. I agree. The mom? The, yeah, we don't need that. You can lose, what is her name, like Beth Brent? You can yeah. lose her. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but what I find really fascinating is that, like, knowing that, it makes those scenes m- make so much sense. And mm-hmm. they also are presented and shot in ways that, to me, like, th- like there's no male gaze of these moments of nudity. Mm-hmm. Um, it very much feels like a woman's hand is is you know, controlling this, this image. Uh And I love that because that's not very common, especially in this time period. No, it's, it's tasteful. I think it's really actually interesting to think about how teen films as we know them in the eighties are going to take off the next year with 16 candles, which is very much a sex comedy for Mm -hmm. half of its run. Um, and then we credit John Hughes with like creating the, the teen thing as we know it. And like, that's true. John Hughes is the one who like, he was consistent and did a lot of, work in the mid part of the eighties for the teen genre. But like he did it on the foundation that was built by women in Valley girl and fast times. Yeah. And that's a thing that never gets talked about. And I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because the, the teen movie, as we know it, it starts with Amy Heckerling and Martha Coolidge. And yet John Hughes gets all the credit specifically because he was consistent. Mm-hmm. And he, he made blockbusters out of them. Yes. He made iconic memories and moments. And his movies were probably pushed better because John Hughes. Because he's John Hughes. Yes. Yeah. So like that's part of it. Um, also worth noting about Valley Girl is that Valley Girl was made for nothing and had a tremendous turnaround. This like, movie was made for like $350,000. Which adjusting for inflation, that's about a million dollars. That's which is still a nothing, low budget film. Especially considering like... I don't know, man. Like, there's the, the, even the soundtrack alone. Like, we just did Almost Famous, and licensing music music is bonkers, mm-hmm. which is why this movie didn't get an official soundtrack release until the 90s. But even looking at, like, Fast Times or 16 Candles, those cost five, six million dollars each. Mm-hmm. Valley Girl had a fraction of their budget and then made what is an equivalent of $50 million in turnaround. Yeah, which is unheard of. Uh, especially for teen films. So there's there's a lot of good going on with this mm-hmm. movie. And I'm glad that, you know, it's having its anniversary. So we can talk about it. Give it its flowers. <laughs> Give it its flowers for sure. Um, all right. So let's talk about Julie. Deborah Foreman. She is our girl next door. She's our, our Juliet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about her? 
I think she makes sense as a Juliet. Like, if you look at Julie as, like, a character, I think she's a little, you know, she's she's fine. She's sufficient, same way that, like, Randy is a sufficient character. But, like, when you understand that, like, they are essentially a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, it makes way more sense for, like, why she is how she is. Um, I actually really, really like the way they approach the Romeo and Juliet with Randy and Julie in this movie. Mm-hmm. Because, like, it, I'm not the best on Shakespeare. So so feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But isn't the whole thing with the, the, the Capulets and the Montagues, isn't it, like, supposed to be senseless violence? And then the young couple dies at the end, and that just makes it more of a tragedy? Isn't that the point? Yes, the entire point is, and what's always really fascinating is that, like, whenever they do retellings of Romeo and Juliet, it is often people that are coming from, like, entirely different backgrounds of, like, you know, West Side Story is probably the most famous where sure. it's, you know, a, a white gang and a Puerto Rican gang. So now we're dealing with issues of class. We're dealing with There's issues more of going race. On. There's more stuff going on. But like Romeo and Juliet is like two very wealthy families. They just don't like each other yeah. because they see each other as like competition, but they're on the same level. Like they're not coming from different like social classes or worlds. They're just families that don't get along with each other. Yeah. So like that's an element that I think is really interesting because Julie is the rich girl, and Randy isn't. So then this brings up, like, sort of the John Hughes-isms of it, where it's like... It's, like, pretty in pink. It's pretty in pink, or it's even some kind of wonderful to an extent, but it is this element of, like, working class versus rich, and because the movie has the budget, like, the rich people in this movie aren't that rich. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't have the mansions like we see in John Hughes movies. They have nice houses. Yeah. But they're not mansions. And it's very much a, a, a neighborhood sort of difference. Yes. Because... Randy is from Hollywood and she's from the Valley. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's basically city versus suburbs. Like Los Angeles is a massive, massive city. It's like 40 cities combined. Yes. That's pretty much how this city is structured. It's bananas. But like. Because the suburbs are a Ponzi scheme created by the automotive company. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why this city is built like a mess. Yes. But like if you live in the Valley, then like you it's believed like you have a home, like Mm -hmm. you're not renting, you're not in an apartment, you have a home, you Mm -hmm. have a neighborhood, you know, you have a mall like that's different than living in Hollywood where like that's where they have street workers there. Yeah. They have Angel there. Like, okay, let's 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 think about that for a second. Speaking of the idea of a home. So Randy and Julie go to that nightclub and he calls it his home away from home. Mm hmm. Do we ever see Randy's house at any point in this movie? Nope. Okay. We never see Randy's home. We don't see his home. We don't know what his parents are like. We don't know a darn thing about him. No. He could be living in that car for all we know. Like we would have no fucking clue. And I'm like, I think that that is really interesting to think Mm -hmm. about. Now, there is the thing where it's like, I know we should be talking more about Julie and we will, but like these two are pretty well entangled. Like the the first half of the movie is more from her perspective. The second half is more from his. Yeah. But these two combined and how they play off of each other. I think it's, like, really smart and subtle how, like, she's rich, but she wants to slum it, but she doesn't see it as slumming like her friends see it as slumming. Mm -hmm. She just wants to not go to parties and wine and dine and wheel and deal and whatever with boring people and shitty people like Tommy who wants to own her. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's really, really interesting the way that this movie handles class structures in a way that Romeo and Juliet never did. I think it's a really, really smart way of updating this. Susie. Put that back, Lauren. You're too small for that. I am not too small. I look totally hot in this. Totally. Oh. No oh man can resist my, 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 my what do you call it? Your tits. Yeah, those are. Come on, put that stuff back, Lauren. 
You think Randy will like me in this one? Oh yeah, like if it was made out of black leather. You know, Tommy's gonna look real good after six grody bus rides in the Hollywood. <laughs> like all those sweaty bobs barf me out. Yeah, like Julie, you really get off hearing about all the parties. What do you mean? Polka's like you'll never be able to go to any as long as you got Randy. Like, don't you think they have parties over there? Oh, where? At the zoo? You can just, like, kiss class rep goodbye. Like, big deal, okay? And what I've always found really interesting about Julie is so we learn very early that she comes from hippie parents. Mm -hmm. And the 80s is this time period where we were starting to see, like, the former hippie, current yuppie sort of world. Especially by the end of the decade? Totally. Yeah. And, like... To give her parents credit, they are still kind of, like, living that life. I mean, dad has, like, a whole monologue about wearing earth-friendly shoes. They own, like... Their health food store like looks a like health a greasy store. spoon. It looks like a greasy spoon that only serves vegan food. Like, yeah. that's very much what they've got going on. And for the 80s, like, you know, that isn't super, like, trendy the way that it is now. Like, I mean, so sushi isn't trendy yet. They look at it like it's alien food. Right. Also, like, they at that party, they have just, like, all of the food you can choose from. And there's just, like, ooh, sushi bar. I would never in my life eat sushi. That's like sitting out at room temperature? Yes. And, like, okay, I can't eat it anyway because I'm allergic to fish. But, like, that mindset, it's like, I've seen how weird Doritos get at house parties. Raw people, fish, people dirty no hands. thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, but what is happening here with, like, Julie, where she's now dealing with all of these, like, all of her friends who are, like, definitely rich kids who probably have very conservative parents. Mm-hmm. She's starting to emulate their behavior, starting to act like them. Julie seems kind of like a gender-flipped version of Michael J. Fox on Family Ties. Okay. Where, like, he's the Republican child and, like, his parents are, like, really progressive liberals that are like, what the hell are we going to do with this kid? Mm-hmm. Julie feels like she's not quite given over to like the Reagan era like ways of living because obviously she finds Randy exciting and he is not a Reaganite by any Mm -hmm. stretch of the imagination. So I think like she's trying to fight becoming that conservative that her friends definitely are. Yeah, but she doesn't want to be like her parents. Like at one point she's like, ooh, dad, you look terrible as a hippie. Right. Like she doesn't. Her very Uncle Rico like dad. (laughs) Yes. Like she hasn't found the balance that exists where like you can still be like progressive and adventurous and liberated, but you don't have to be quote unquote like a damn dirty hippie. Yes. The way her parents are. So uh, here's a thing about Julie that I actually really want to uh, ask you that I noticed because I watched this movie twice for this episode because I had lots of feelings and I needed to take notes the second time around. There, there's there's a conversation that Randy and Julie have where she's like, oh, well, I'm embarrassed because I got to work tomorrow and probably none of her friends have to work. And she works at like a health food store and that's like not super trendy. So like she's embarrassed of that. And he thinks it's just cool because he thinks everything she does is cool. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about this movie and its relationship with food as a storytelling element? Because... She says, like, oh, my parents could own, like, a Pizza Hut, or I'd rather go get, like, burgers, and she eats junk food at the food court at the mall, and Randy takes her to, like, spaghetti restaurants and get burgers and hot dogs and do all these cool things, and, like, he's feeding her, and they have a conversation later at, like, the sleepover, all of the girls about, like, oh, well, guys like Tommy don't like people who are, like, whales. You should splurge and purge. And then when she finally gets back with Tommy... He immediately, like, puts a bracelet on her for ownership and then starts eating her food. Mm-hmm. Like, this is such, like, a unique element that I think is, like, th- th- this, infor- this this duality of, like, 
healthiness that she's like, well, I don't want to be healthy and do stuff with my parents. I want to eat garbage food. But then my boyfriend doesn't want me to eat garbage food. And it's this balancing act for a teenager that I don't know if she's probably ever like processed. Does that make sense? Yes, this makes complete sense. And I think that food is such an important storytelling element in most teen movies because it's one of the few forms of currency that we have Mm -hmm. um, because we're young in teen movies and that's Mm -hmm. what we're dealing with. So like they don't, Like, jewelry is obviously a big thing, but, like, food is the more appropriate thing. And I think that there's so much being said with the food and, like, with – like, because food is a love language for a lot of cultures. Oh, yeah. And, like, obviously it's not on Front Street, but we know that Nicolas Cage is capital I Italian. He's a Coppola, Mm -hmm. for God's sake. Look look at his nose. Look at him. Look at his Italian nose that you used to have and I somehow have. Yes. (laughs) But like, look at him. He's he's an he's an Italian punk. I love mm-hmm. him. Yeah. And like, so yes, food is a very very important thing, and he's going to show appreciation and and you know build community. And this is how he he shows love is by feeding her and specifically feeding her food that she wants. And he, the food that he gives her is comfort food. Like uh-huh. people like to write off stuff like that as like junk food or whatever. Nah, a good burger and spaghetti will always mean more to me than like, "Mm, I spent $800 on this caviar. Like, I don't fucking give a shit. Oh, for sure. But like, even like, like, think about this in terms of like a fast times where like Spicoli has to go in and they have to put on shoes and like they can barely order like French fries or whatever like that. If he doesn't like to be home for any number of reasons we don't see, Mm -hmm. then yeah, he's going to go to like places where he can buy a burger and loiter. Yeah. That makes total sense. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you like, he's not eating at home, then he's going to be eating out. And, and he's what do you know- eat out? And what do you do when you eat out? You eat junk food usually. Yeah, like people have far more comfortability going to like a burger joint and eating by themselves than they do going to like a sit down restaurant and eating by themselves. Uh-huh. Like, there's a difference between like a like a a diner, a drive-in, or a dive uh-huh. versus a restaurant. Like, so this all totally tracks to me. And I'm glad that you pointed out that fucking Tommy. So Julie has, you know, her terrible boyfriend who is very much like the rich person who is only interested in her because of what she represents to him. He wants to control her. He fucking sucks. He's the prototypical Billy Zabka in being blonde and trying to do karate. Yes. Oh, God, he's awful. Um, but the fact that he does take her food, like, yeah, like this is this is him showing exactly who he is by the way he interacts with food mm-hmm. it's like that like the old expression like if you're mean to the wait staff you're like you're a mean person mm-hmm. it's like yeah food's important <laughs> yeah so at the very start of the movie like she gives tommy back her the bracelet that he gave her mm-hmm. and it's basically like i don't want to be your girl i don't want your class ring or you know, whatever just th- th- that the, yeah the teen MacGuffin of showing ownership over the girl that's your girl that is like not a hickey <laughs> um so, so 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 she gives that back and then later at that party he's talking to other girls and he's like well fuck you no one's going to want to get to with you anyway mm-hmm. and then he goes and sleeps with EG Daily and where the nudity in most of this movie I think is not necessary and you can easily cut it and I'm not positive I've ever seen a lot of it cuz I saw the TV edit of this that scene is so vital because you and I talked about this like oh no her friends are kind of shitty towards her and they're like really like classist and they just want to follow trends or whatever and it's like i'm not convinced that lauren who's eg daly's character is fully like that because she's got so like first of all she's like west coast natasha leone with her giant hair and like her smoky strained voice huge like specifically like when they're at the beach and her hair's giant oh her hair looks like a she's like a girl in a david lee roth music video yeah she's amazing fan. she looks so cool <laughs> i love eg daly but 
I don't think that she's necessarily like the other friends in this group Mm -hmm. because she's being blackmailed. Because mm-hmm. Tommy's like, oh, you're a fucking lousy friend. Like, you slept with your your friend's ex. If you try to say anything about how I'm a dirtbag, I'm going to make you seem worse. Yeah, he's terrible. Like, he completely manipulates her into that situation. Mm-hmm. He, like, plays psychological mind games. She unfortunately falls for it because she's, I think she's deeply insecure. Oh, yeah. Um, well, she's, she's established as the slut character. Yeah. And she wears a jumpsuit with, like, a front... Uh, unfastening bra, yeah. which is like a really smart move. Like, kudos. It's to also her. a really great look. <laughs> oh, it's so cool. She's so cool. She's so cool. Like, she's the one I want to hang out with because she's cool. But like, yeah, no, I think she is insecure, and like, I think that that's like the shorthand of what that is. Yeah, she's insecure, and she's you know being blackmailed by him the entire time. So it establishes not only that like one Tommy fucking blows. Like we already know like he's terrible, but also. Like, her friend is being really shitty to her, and it's not because she's shitty. It's because the situation that she's in is shitty. The other friends, however, I think are shitty. I think they're shitty for a variety of reasons. Um, so Stacy's the one that they go on the double date with on, like, after the party. I mm-hmm. think Stacy, there is something exciting about slumming it for her, but mm-hmm. she doesn't want anyone to know about it. Yeah, she's got to keep this a dirty little secret. And then there's Susie, and Susie's just kind of boring, and I think that they introduce the element of her stepmom trying to fuck the boy that she's into as just some we it's a sex hijink and yeah. we needed something for her to do yeah um honestly i think you could kind of cut her as a character and the movie doesn't lose much i don't think it changes at all <laughs> yeah but like one thing that i really like about the lauren character is that when julie is like kind of humming and hawing about like oh who am i gonna get with because like my friends don't like randy but i like randy but tommy's a piece of shit but he's the status symbol She has a sit-down conversation with her dad. We get a great father-daughter speech. We love father-daughter speeches. I want to talk about this dad a little bit in a sec, because I had weird feelings about him, but he's grown on me. Mm -hmm. But before that, she has a conversation, not with the other two girls. She has a one-on-one conversation with E.G. Daly. And both of the conversations play out really, really similar, which is that, hey, I'm not going to tell you who I think you should be with. They're kind of like, you need to make this decision for yourself. Like, she doesn't say anything particularly strong about Randy. But she doesn't really say, hey, you should get with Tommy. Because, mm-hmm. like, she's holding that secret. But she's she doesn't want him to necessarily be with Randy. But she doesn't want him to be with Tommy. And mm-hmm. the options aren't one, the other, or neither. It's one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find that to be very, very interesting as well. And, again, like, because we have that scene and we know the motivation behind it, like, she's trying her hardest to be a good friend without incriminating herself. And sure, you could make the argument of, like, well, she should just be honest and she should just tell her of all course. these things. They're 17 years old. They're like, 17 year olds. And they're, also, how many movies have we covered on this podcast where they don't get mad at the boy, they get mad at the friend? Exactly. Like, and the person who is the the ultimate villain of this is Tommy. He deserves to get his ass kicked. He uh-huh. sucks. He's Tommy the worst. Does. Yeah. Like, and, like, we get the payoff where it's, like, he beats up Randy at the first time they meet, and then he gets payback and whoops the shit out of him in front of Josie Cotton. Yeah, it's great. Like, if I got my ass kicked in front of Josie Cotton, I would never, you'd never see me again. No. I would be a hermit forever, more Just, than I already am. I would be am. inconsolable. Oh, my God. It'd be so <laughs> devastating. But, like, okay, like, actually, like, here's an element that I also really would like to bring up about about Randy and how they feel weird about him at the beach. When we first see Nicholas cage and he's got that perfect triangle of chest hair for some reason, <laughs> they're all into him. Yeah. Cause they're like, Whoa, look at that guy. Look and he this, is super hunky. Look at this dreamboat with his pecs and his abs. And then they find out like, Oh, where do you live? How do you dress? Oh, never mind. What music do you listen to? That they learn about him, but like they don't think he's unattractive. Mm-hmm. They quite the opposite. They do. They've They're into him. Mm hmm. 
but it's like, oh, it's all of all of that social extra baggage now that mm-hmm. like, mm, no, it does it does make a really unappealing set for me. And that's why I think like having the hand of like Martha Coolidge behind the camera is so important because that you're totally right. Like that sets it up that it's not that they think that he's ugly. It's not that they think that he's like not sexy enough for her. It's the everything else about him. It's mm-hmm. the stuff that in their minds, quote unquote, he can control this, which is ridiculous but whatever so you know randy meets her at this house party and something that i have never like really processed in my head is so like they have the fight he ends up sneaking back into the house through mm-hmm. a window and ends up in the bathroom and just hides out in the bathtub Until like he comes in like he's fucking cassie from euphoria like that's all i could think about and it's it's also such a great device because I have seen some people that are like, what a creep. He was hanging out in the bathroom. But it's like if somebody was actually using the bathroom, he was like hiding. He's like, I don't want to spy on people. Mm -hmm. The only time he's ever spying is because he's noticing people that are like cheating on their partners or they're doing drugs. Mm -hmm. And so like you're getting this look at the the world that Julie is surrounded by, which is full of people who are trying to act like they're better than everybody else, but they are just as like shitty and like scummy as all of these punks in Hollywood that they want to judge. And I think that that is so brilliant that we get that sort of like worldview building. I I love that. Mm Mm-hmm. And so speaking of worldview building, though, let's go back to the dad, because you had a point and I knew where you were going with it. Uh When mom and dad are introduced, I fucking hate dad. Oh, dad's gross, because dad's like, oh, Stacy, if I was 20 years younger. And like when we first meet them, it feels a lot like dad married a way younger woman, because there's actually a difference between the two ages of the actors. But like canonically these the mom and dad are the same age yes so it it's such a weird thing and it's such hollywood bullshit where they clearly cast colleen camp even though she is only nine years older than deborah foreman mm-hmm. because heaven forbid we cast like a an age appropriate like mom. mom yeah how dare we how would we ever <laughs> don't, so don't get me wrong like knowing that she's doing clue two years later mm-hmm. and she's so unbelievably a bombshell yeah <laughs> like she, she can do it all yeah she can do it all and like i'm never they gonna make be her upset look strongly like a mom in this yes yeah i'm never gonna be upset about seeing colleen camp because she's such a treat um but yeah so dad like just it feels weird because it feels like he's a guy who married somebody much younger even though like they talk about oh we went to woodstock together and it's mm-hmm. like okay so he didn't but then he talks about his daughter in ways that feel like kind of weird and then he even like after she leaves for the party is like she looks just like you like you know when you were that age and she's like oh do I still look that good and he's like yeah you look better and like it like that stuff is very sweet it's this mixed bag of like okay it's a little weird Mm -hmm. but it's fine and then like time goes on and it's like no, this is just how dads kind of talk sometimes where it's like, I mean, he's not being creepy. He's being a, like a dad and making jokes and paying compliments. And also he genuinely really loves his daughter and cares a lot. Mm-hmm. Like this dad feels so authentically like dad's embarrassing and kind of gross. Like, I don't think he realizes that what he's saying sounds kind of creepy. Yeah. Like that's the kind of dad he is because the more you learn about him and learn his character it's like oh i get it okay i understand Mm -hmm. you're not like a weirdo you're just awkward (laughs) no he's a nervous dad like he's like i got sweaty palms i gotta go smoke a joint before i take photos of prom (laughs) because like it you know it's also that like hippie thing of like oh my god i have a kid that's old enough to go to prom Uh that means i'm old man like that's you know that's a culture shock for him Uh uh-huh um so yeah dad starts out being a character that i'm like oof i don't remember the dad being weird oh god and then it's like oh wait no he's not weird he's awkward okay i got it he's just 
being a, a, a weird dad who didn't realize in the 60s and certainly didn't realize in the 80s when this was shot that like, eh, maybe don't say that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, you know, you finally get Randy, you know, taking Julie from the party. They go off on adventures and like a main through line of like why their relationship is so exciting is that they're so different from one another. Mm -hmm. And I find it very interesting how this movie presents their differences because when Julie and Randy are on that first car ride uh, going to the club mm -hmm. and they're driving through Hollywood, Randy is like shouting from the car at all of the people that he knows. All his friends. All his friends. And Thought you were going to get the mohawk. No, I chickened out or being like, hey, what are you doing over there? Yeah, it's like that kind of energy, which I love. But like as he's driving, it's like, okay, there's a guy with like kind of like a crust punk sort of thing. You've got, uh, you know, a guy who clearly works like on the street as like, you know, whatever he does. He's also got black friends. Mm -hmm. um, Randy is like like this is a such a good symbol of like oh this is class solidarity mm -hmm. because like a whole group of people walk by and they are all black and they're all like oh hey man and he's like hey what's up and like he doesn't put on a weird black scent the way that like every Anthony Michael Hall interaction with a black person in a John Hughes movie is like like that doesn't happen like he's still dirty punk Randy but talking like hey, what's up? Like, these are, like, I know you. These are my friends. And, mm -hmm. like, they're communicating with each other. And it's like... It's the people you see oh, on the street yeah. every night because that's where you all are. Exactly. You, you are familiar with the people in your community and y'all are looking out for each other and you're excited to see each other. And that's, like, one element that I wish was explored more but obviously is not going to be in this movie because it's not about that. No. But it is, is very... Romance. Yeah, it is very fascinating. And, like, there are people of color at the party that Julie is at, but, like, they're kind of all background characters and to some mm -hmm. extent you know the people on the street with randy are also background characters but the way that they connect with one another is very different mm -hmm. like with julie it's like oh there are black people here but they're just kind of there with randy like it is a direct interaction of like oh no i know you and we are friends and we communicate and like that is the big difference between the two of them yep. is that like julie's life is very insular like she hangs out with the same people they do the same things they go to the same places and she doesn't ever go outside that bubble mm -hmm. there's no bubble for randy like he is friends with everybody and he knows everybody and like he has a like a very diverse look at the world around him which is what julie has been trying to have her whole life and to some extent like a thing that was kind of robbed from her because her parents became yuppies because that happened like so many of like you know that that age of people it's a trope for a reason. Mm -hmm. They had their summer of love. They did all that fun stuff. And I mean, they most all... hippies are Republicans. And then they all settled down. They, and they like... were conservatives who went out and, you know, it, it pulps common people where it's like, I want to sleep with the commoners and live it up and do whatever. But like, you know, I can call my dad if things get too hard or I get stranded somewhere and then I go right. back to living my fucking life. It's, it's so much that, um, ah, oh God, I just, I really love the, the 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 music montages in the scene. Like I love watching them drive around. I love I watching love these it. two interact. Like these two have such good chemistry together. They have wonderful chemistry, which is shocking because Julie is definitely presented sort of as like a shell character. Mm -hmm. Um you know, not quite the Bella Swan. Like she has more personality than that, but she's she's the person that we're supposed to be able to see ourselves in. True. So she's left intentionally vague so that 
we can't disassociate from her. Yeah, she's a shell and and Brandy's a manic pixie dream boy. He is absolutely a manic pixie dream boy because he shows up and changes her whole life. Yeah, so it's like, it's really weird that like these characters work so well considering that they're kind of vague. Mm-hmm. But like we, we learn enough and we can make inferences. But like, I love watching them drive around and like you have Susie in the back being embarrassed and Fred's there just kind of fucking with her. I love Fred. I love He's Fred great. too. I want to talk more about Fred. I got strong feelings about Fred. Okay. Um, But... I, I love this montage because this is this is the same size, this is the same time and the same strip that Angel takes place in, mm-hmm. which is the LA that I romanticize in my brain. Going, that's the LA I like. I love seeing the Roxy and the Rainbow and all of like the shitty stuff. Like, incidentally, like the guy who owns the diner in Angel calls it a toilet, and I'm like, no, but I love it. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, it used to be beautiful, and I'm like, it probably was, but I like the toilet version. Yeah, <laughs> this, this is where all of my hair bands and my punk bands and like that's where the legends and the pictures and the the culture that I grew up studying and becoming obsessed with in the way that a lot of I think that a lot of us I think were sold on like Woodstock, like oh, romanticize the culture of Woodstock. I'm like, no, give me the scummy like sunset boulevard and hollywood boulevard of the 80s specifically Mm -hmm. the early 80s before like this is hair metal hasn't even happened yet like hair metal hasn't blown up and then it's going to become this whole other thing of like excess and misogyny and whatever but like again this movie's right place right time well to tell you the truth i kind of thought that maybe you and i could uh... we could what we could get out of here like, I don't think you'd be any more welcome down there right now. I mean, let's leave the party. I'm so sure. Kill. I'll meet you out front. Wait a minute. Where are we going to go? I don't care. What are we going to do? Anything. Okay, but I have to bring my best friend. In Teen Movie Hell, Mike talks about sort of that reception, and he says, Los Angeles teenagers reacted to Valley Girl like traffic passing through a massive freeway interchange, either taking Route A, bitchin', that's me up there, or Route B, fuck this fucking bullshit thinking it knows me and telling the world that's how I am. (laughs) Regardless, Valley Girl survives as a flash-frozen capture of a particular time and place that was lost when California's distinct new wave youth culture was transformed for national consumption by MTV. So like the exact thing thing that you said. I do do okay for a person who doesn't read that many books. (laughs) And then something else that I do want to like highlight uh, before we dive into like Fred and like other side characters is uh, Mike did include this quote from E.G. Daly, which I really love that says Martha Coolidge was a newer director and very, very good at what she did. We had a blast. She would sit on the floor with me right before a shoot. And then we'd talk about things. There was a moment where I was frustrated about the topless scene, but we talked about it and she was very sensitive to me. I have a lot of respect for her. This incredible little movie blew up to become an iconic cult hit. Mm -hmm. So I do love hearing like from the actual people that were in the movie, like, yeah, no, this director knew what she was doing and she's great. And we all had a wonderful time. I love that. That stuff just makes me happy. So, you know, especially because this is like the highest profile thing eg daily would do outside of peewee until she until she became to Tommy pickles yeah. yeah um yeah this is this is a big character for her um and a, i think a really lovely performance too i think she does a really really good job mm-hmm. um but let's let's talk about fred let's talk about this guy 
I so love him. <laughs> the way you described Fred is the unsung hero of the movie. And I was like, yeah, no, I totally see that. And I'm like, oh, no, I think I got way deeper on my second rewatch of this movie mm-hmm. where I'm like, oh, no, Fred is legit, like, the unsung hero of this movie. He really is. And I think that people who really want to approach this movie with bad faith probably hate Fred for, like, his introduction and the way he treats Susie and how he's just a fucking pest. Mm-hmm. Like, they probably hate him, but I'm like, oh, no, no, no. No, there's way more going on with him. So yes. give me give me your thoughts. Okay, I love Fred. And the reason that I love Fred is I don't think that he's a pest. I think that he thinks that the idea of like Valley Girls is really novel. Mm-hmm. And he is fully aware these people are scared of me. Yeah. Like they think that like there's something wrong with me. And it is hilarious to me that they think that I am dangerous. Mm-hmm. So he's not like intentionally trying to like be hurtful or harmful. He's like... No, I'm absolutely going to weaponize your weird insecurities and hangups against you. And you deserve that for being such a judgmental little priss. And he's right. I agree. And then eventually, like, Susie kind of gets worn down by how, like, quirky and funny he is. Because she can't avoid it. She is trying so hard. She's the friend who got dragged on a double date she doesn't want to go on. And, like, these two don't really have chemistry, but they're like, eh, fuck it, we're having fun. Like, that's how it is by the end of that date. The best example of this that I can kind of uh, bring to is it reminds me so much of, like, Kristen Ritter and She's Out of My League. Okay. But, like, obviously this is a gender-flipped version of it where, like, she's the best friend of the girl who's, like, having her romance thing and she's just here to, like, fuck with the guy, like, the the friends or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what Fred is doing here. And... I love that he is messing with her in this whole situation because it's one of those situations where like I have heard so many people talk about how like, well, you know, you really shouldn't lean into it because then you're just, you know, you're just giving them power to believe that we actually are all awful. You shouldn't do that. And it's like, no, I'm sorry that but like people who are being oppressed have no obligation to be respectable to be respectable or to be respectful towards their oppressors and like obviously this is they're all white people but this is a class situation Mm -hmm. so like fred has no obligation to not present himself as like weird and kind of scary to her especially when he's not actually being scary he's being silly he's being such a sanitized like he's so sanitized and eventually like they do kind of like kiss at the end of that date and I, i he doesn't make moves until she's like Okay, fine. I've I've decided to come along for the ride. Yeah, because he's still being respectful. Yeah, like above all else, I, I he's so complicated as Fred, a character and so, so interesting. Here's why I love Fred, and here's why he's the unsung hero of the movie. So halfway through the movie, we switch switch perspectives. We're now focusing on Randy. We're spending a lot more time with Nicolas Cage. We meet. We learn about Samantha, who is like has like elbow length leather gloves and like ridiculous new wave makeup. She's a fucking knockout, and she is like a cat on the prowl and she, she wants Randy. Mm -hmm. What she says is like, Oh cool. You haven't talked to me in two months. You haven't, you know, you've been ignoring me and I'll, this is all I want. And we have figured out that Julie and Randy have not had sex. They just go on like nice little dates. They enjoy each other's company. Like it's a different form of intimacy than like probably sex starved Tommy. Absolutely. Sex hungry. Samantha. These two are looking for something else and they're meeting those needs with each other that is the opposite of what they have fred is trying to look out for his buddy because he just hears some girls like at the concession stand at the beach talking about a party and then they crash the party because he's just trying to like either they're gonna like fuck around and have fun or like hey maybe you'll actually meet a girl and get your mind off of like samantha he's genuinely just constantly looking out for his dude he's like hey if you really love this girl like i think it's kind of stupid but if you really love this girl 
big romantic gestures. Women love those. Why not try that? Who gives a shit? He's just saying anything to get him through like his essentially he just is like wandering around the streets trying to pick fight, hoping someone that will hoping someone will fucking kill him. Mm-hmm. Like that's what he wants. He's like, I'm dying here, man. Take that brick, cave me in. I don't care. Yeah. He's saying anything to make his friend Belle feel better in the moment. That's where you get Randy doing all these ridiculous romantic gestures, some of which work much better than others, because mm-hmm. some of them are a little less psychotic. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, cool, what you're doing's not working, dumbass. Here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. He's constantly looking out for his friend before the movie, all the way up to the end of the movie. He's and- such a good friend. And he also has great hair. Yeah, hair that changes <laughs> colors. Big fun. Big fun there. I love it. Um I, I just love the world that this movie has built. I love the characters. And so when we finally do have the big conflict where Julie is like, I can't be with you, Randy. I'm going to go back to dating this human toe. Uh, I, I hate that scene. I hate not, it the scene, so much. The scene gets the right response out of me. But like, listen, you deserve that. Fuck you. Yeah, you absolutely. That. Okay, so I've had a conversation with somebody once who talked about how they don't like Valley Girl specifically because they hate how angry Nick Cage sounds when he says, like, fuck you to her after that. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. She deserves to be told fuck you. Like, she is so clearly in love with him and is doing all of this wonderful stuff, and she is throwing that all in the trash because she would much rather like save face and make appearances because he even is like, what is it? Your friends? Are they the ones who did it? And like, she can't answer. And he knows this isn't a decision that you actually want. You're doing this because you're, you feel peer pressure Mm -hmm. and like, that's not the girl you are. And I'm mad about it. And like, yeah, he, she deserves to be told, fuck you. You broke his heart because you're being stupid. Like, Mm -hmm. Uh, like I don't I don't I, I she deserves I, it like she deserves I, to be told fuck you <laughs> I agree um but the, like the way that film that whole thing is filmed it feels weird maybe I don't think it's necessarily the movie's fault per se but like the movie and the score like the soundtrack specifically makes it feel like this is a little more dangerous and like with no other context it's like oh no he seems like he's in the wrong like if you right. just like take that scene pluck it out put it on Twitter people will go oh my god he's so abusive Right, like, but he's if slamming you, the door. He's like not letting her slam the door. Like it's this whole thing. Yeah, but if you watch it within the context, it's like no, he is justified in every single thing that he's doing right now. Yes. So uh, story time. So I was seeing a girl in my early twenties um, who lived in Independence, Ohio, which was very far from Cleveland, mm-hmm. and I was the one with the car because uh, when when you when you do that gay dating, sometimes you have to drive really fucking far in Ohio into the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um. But, like, I was seeing this girl, like, we fell real hard, real fast. Um, I think we were probably both, I was lonely, and she was good enough. And I found out later on that, you know, we dated for, like, three weeks, and then suddenly she started to be like, oh, hey, let's not hang out every other day. Mm-hmm. No, I'll call you when I'm, oh, I'm not feeling good. Um, and I'll be like, oh, I'll bring you something. Do you need soup? Or I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I just, I don't, I'm good. Like, I don't need to see you. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, we were dating, dating, and, like... And dating, dating, as in, like, we started seeing each other for three weeks. But, like, we were we were sort of, like, a thing. It was committed enough. Look, some lesbians move in after, like, two weeks of dating. So, like, th- three weeks is pretty much a long time. Like, our, our timelines don't work the same way that, like, cis straight peoples do. <laughs> Y'all are so weird. I don't get it. Anyway. But, um, yeah, so what I end up finding out after she ghosts me for, like, 10 to 12 days is, oh, no, I was a ploy. Mm-hmm. She wanted to get with me and then bragged about getting with a trans woman to all the people around her so that her cis 
ex-girlfriend would get jealous because she was seeing someone with a with a dick. And then mm-hmm. they, she came crawling back. And then as soon as that happened, boom, ghosted me. Which Wanted nothing to do with me. So and then would like send up. me friend requests for like once a year for the next like four years going like, dude, I'm just trying to be friends. What the fuck? Why are you so mad? It's like, um, I'm like, I don't know. Cause you dehumanized me. You fucking asshole. Yeah, I was a pawn. I don't fucking know. But like, oh, I, I feel his thing because it's, it's, I don't know if it's really easy to sort of make sense uh, if you've not been on the receiving end of this. Like I'm not on, I'm not on the team of like, oh, well, ghosting is abuse. Eh? The way that we've like really gone to that extreme and people are trying to sue people over it now. Yeah. Which like, is ridiculous. That's too much. But like. We see them go on a lot of dates. Like the I melt with you scene, there's a lot of costume changes on those dates. Mm-hmm. They've been seeing each other for presumably like two months because if, if not you know, more than that, how yeah. long we've been taught because of how long we learn about because of Samantha. So we've been seeing each other for a bit. And then with like no indication and no nothing, she just goes, I don't want to see you anymore. Get away from me. Like warm to cold immediately and so like yeah he's fucking confused and he's a and he's hurt and he knows exactly what the problem is Mm -hmm. i get this i understand this man and the thing is so do i (laughs) i'm not arguing with you i'm just saying there's people out there who (laughs) don't get why he feels like this like listen he's 17 nicholas cage himself i think he's like 19 when he's filming this he's doing a marvelous job yeah he's but like he's a 17 year old dude from like the gutter Mm-hmm. Who doesn't have like a good home life? He's he's gonna be angry. Yeah, he, he he's like he's got like very little that he can call his own. And like, there's a scene um when they first leave the party before he comes back where he's like, nobody's gonna tell me who the fuck I can score with. Like fuck that. And if you take that out of context, it's like, oh no, like he's gonna go like do whatever. And it's like, no, he's talking to Tommy. He's not talking to women. He respects women. Mm-hmm. He's just like. There's these exterior circumstances that he doesn't play by and it's Mm -hmm. really fucking frustrating and he doesn't know how to deal with it. And also like Randy is such an honest character Uh that it's really frustrating for him. Like, honestly, he wouldn't say fuck you to her if she would have just been like, yeah, you're right. We're from different backgrounds. We can't be together. Like if she had just been honest, I think he would have been like, he would have been like, all right, cool. I get it. And you suck for that. I think he would have been mad and he would have walked away. But it's the fact that it's like, oh, no, I can tell that you are that you care about me and you're trying to spare my feelings and also maybe exonerate yourself of guilt. Exactly. By, like, skirting around the issue. Uh-uh. I am a blunt tool of a person, which I can also relate to. Like, I am a hammer. <laughs> I'm not an elegant tool. And I th- th- that's it. I'm going to be straightforward with what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I love hate that scene because... I don't want it to be there because I want them to just be together. But I understand why it's there. And I think that it's a really good thing. I hate that scene because I don't like how people misconstrue it. Yes, I agree with that, too. There is a school of thought that I have never, ever been able to subscribe to, which is this idea that, like, it it, it feels very girl boss to me of, like, you you don't owe anyone an explanation, girl. Do what you want. I don't like that mentality because, yes, if somebody is, like, actively being shitty or, like, you are scared of them or, like, Mm -hmm. there is some sort of issue, you can absolutely ghost them. Or if circumstances happen in your life where it's just not in your best interest to communicate to them, yeah, fucking ghost them. I don't give a shit. That's fine. Especially if it's, like, early on in a relationship or whatever. Right. But, But like, the circumstances. You committed some time and some bond to this. He's met your parents. Yeah. Like, 
Come on. Like, you can at least treat him with enough dignity to tell him what's going on. And that's what it is. Like, this is, it, it, it is such it's an dehumanizing undig- him. Yes. Like how the rich people in the valley do to all of, like, the scumbags and dirtbags in Hollywood that yes. they pretend they're better than. Yes. That's and that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. And that's why it is, like, doubly frustrating. And, again, why he is valid for yelling at her about this. Because uh-huh. she's being really shitty. And, like, yeah, she's crying about it. And she's crying not because she's being sworn at or because she's scared or because she's upset. She's guilty. Like, mm-hmm. she's crying because she's guilty. Like, don't get me wrong. I feel bad for her to some extent. But, like, the problem is the problem you're creating. Mm-hmm. No you can fix this. No one is making you do this. No. You, you chose. You, you are do, people do things for two reasons. One, they want to. Or two, they feel like they have to. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want to. She feels like she has to. Mm-hmm. But, like, you're still the one who's making that choice. Exactly. You, all, all of this conflict, all of this, it's, it's you. Yes. You you are in your way. Hi, I'm the problem, it's me. Like, that's what, yes, Julie, you are the problem. Uh-huh. <sighs> oh, so frustrating. Look, I have to go to bed now. Hey, come over here. I love you. That's all I wanted to say. I love you. So we can see. Hey, hey. We can see you again. You can't. What? Don't do that to me. You can't save me anymore. Is it your father? Is it your mother? Just let me talk to them. I can really fix it. No, them. there's nothing to fix. It's not them. It's not them at all. It's me, okay? I can't see you anymore, okay? Okay. Okay. I know what it is. I know what it is. I know what this is. It's your fucking friends, right? Shit, Julie. I mean, what is this? It's between you and me, not between the rest of the fucking world. So fuck off. It's your friends. Well, fuck you. Now fuck off for sure. Like, totally. All right, so we've danced around it for the whole movie. Let's talk about The Valley, because the very first episode we ever did of this podcast is about Clueless, Mm -hmm. and a big part of Clueless is it's like, ooh, share, like, The Valley, like, you would never want anyone to mistake that you're from The Valley. It's dirty there, and everyone's poor. Twelve years earlier in this movie, The Valley is the place to be. Mm Mm-hmm. What happened in 12 years, BJ? Let's have a big discussion about this. All right. So admittedly, this is a huge topic and we are speaking in generalities. Of people who weren't there and are also from the Midwest. Yes. But in our own research. Yes. So understand that this, like, we are not getting into the intricacies. This is not a history podcast. So what happened is that the, and there are some areas in the valley that still very much are the valley of the 80s. For sure. Mm-hmm. But the valley in places like Glendale, uh, like North Hollywood, um, a lot of the neighborhoods that are around where Harmony and I live, they are not filled with a lot of white people. Um, a lot of people of color and immigrants um, started moving to the valley because it was an af- it became an affordable place to live. It still is one of the most affordable places to live in Los Angeles is to live the in the valley. The suburbs are supposed to be more affordable than the city. Yeah. That's um, the appeal of suburbs. Yeah. So what has happened is like 
white people have started making these big luxury high-rise apartment buildings in Hollywood. And like, that's where they've all kind of gone to. So a lot of like immigrants and like working class people now live in the Valley. So it changed dramatically. So when we get to Clueless, we get Cher, who is still talking with like Val speak of the as if whatever sort of thing. But oh, she it is, lives it's in the terminal velocity of Valley Girl speak. Yes, but she lives in Beverly Hills. And like that is rich white people territory. Mm-hmm. So like she is shopping just as much as the people in 80s movies, but she's going to She like, lives in a mansion. Yeah, she's going to really nice malls. She's mm-hmm. shopping on Sunset. She's going to boutiques. It's not the Sherman Oaks mall the way that it is in like Valley Girl or in Fast Times. I mean, it's one of the last shots of the movie is them getting on the highway and it's like Sherman Oaks. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it is very interesting um, to see how dramatically culturally things changed because like. In like 10 years? In like 10 years because like. Valley Girl Speak was associated with like opulence in mm-hmm. the 80s. And then by the time you're or in at the least 90s. Commercialism. Yeah. And by the time you get into the 90s, you know, Cher goes to the party in the valley. And one of the ways that they try to like pinpoint, like, oh, this is a dangerous part of town, which grow up, it's not. Um, it really isn't. I get my hair done over there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's like uh, there's helicopters flying above the house at the party that they're at. And she gets mugged outside Circus Liquors. Dude, and we've had to stop recording twice in this episode because helicopters have flown <laughs> over our heads. <laughs> right. So it's just really fascinating that this language that is still permeating through culture like the fact that i say like as much as i do Mm -hmm. that is an extension of the way that valley girl speak and val speak has you know just completely taken over culture Mm -hmm. even though i have never lived in california until very recently and Mm -hmm. yet i was a kid from the midwest being like ew uh," like that i mean i say like basically as a form of using a comma Mm mm-hmm I'm the same way. Like, and I a, type a like out is like. A, like is a wind up to a comma for yeah. me in my sentences. And I type like out when I write too. Yeah, it me just, too. Because it, otherwise it doesn't feel like it's my voice because Correct. this is how same. I talk. Yeah. And what's funny is how often, um, I know Sarah Marshall gets complaints about this on both You Are Good and You're Wrong About where people will be like, I don't like the way that Sarah says like all the time. I think it's super unprofessional. I think we get a little bit of leeway because we're specifically talking about teen girl movies. So people expect us to sound this way. Sure. We've never gotten any complaints. <laughs> yeah. But I have gotten personal complaints when I've guessed it on other podcasts, like horror podcasts or whatever, for saying whatever, totally like, which are parts of my vernacular and always have been. Because Valley Girl Speak has evolved from being just like Southern California 80s rich white girls to now it is dumb bimbo airhead white girls Mm -hmm. like that's what this language is associated with and what i also find funny like i could go on like a linguistic rant forever but i promise i'll end it with this is so we have learned as a culture that if you talk this way you are perceived as unintelligent you are also perceived as stupid or prissy or preppy and, and, or and, and weak. Va- and Valley Girl isn't necessarily a thing anymore, but the, the second part of that is girl. Yes, it is girl. Like you are viewed as like immature or you're, a girl for talking this way. You're a dumb way. woman and women know less than men because you say stuff like totally. Right. So what's been happening is I think this is part of why so many like white people have started co-opting AAVE as their own language because that's still cool. 
Like, mm-hmm. AAVE is cool. I don't want to sound like a valley girl because then people are going to think I'm stupid or they're going to think X, Y, or Z. Meanwhile, if you go on TikTok, there are so many, like, black creators that are like, white girls, why did you ever – they call it a white uh, white American vernacular in- English or wave. They're mm-hmm. like, why did you get rid of that? Do you know how devastating it is for someone to say talk to the hand because the face don't want to listen or loser, loser, <laughs> double loser, whatever. They're like, that is so like dehumanizing. You don't need AAVE. Like your language is fine. So I personally, I really think we need to bring back Valspeak. Like mm-hmm. we need to bring that back. One, we're not co-opting from black people when we do that. And two, it is like super dehumanizing. If like some guy comes up to me and is like, hey, baby, you want to drink? And I go, Ugh, ew, whatever. Like, I'm sorry, you're going home crying. It's pretty devastating. <laughs> it's like, so devastating. I don't, I don't know how much it comes through on the podcast. In my brain, I basically talk like a bodacious 90s person <laughs> and also use like way old timey terminology like cockamamie. Yes. Um, I don't know how much of that comes through on the podcast, but like that's how I talk and I don't know how that scans to other people who listen. <laughs> I guess I guess let me know. But I think it's so fascinating to see the 10 year swing of like, well, I guess I guess I shouldn't pave over what you're saying. I agree with everything you're saying. Anyway, now to my point. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I think it's so weird to see how the 80s, then to the 90s, changed radically on how like the Los Angeles landscape is. Because I still see people like since living here, and my understanding of this city is you know firsthand experience has only been in the 2020s now. Mm-hmm. People have weird relationships with the Valley, where some people are like, oh no, the Valley is like the best, and other people are like. Ew, I fucking hate the valley. Uh, nobody lives there except for a bunch of fucking Nazis and alt-right. And I'm like, I'm sure that that exists. Okay, but like, that's like one section of I'm like, a city. I'm not going to say the name of because that's mean. <laughs> yeah, but I'm like, it's a weird thing where I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have somebody that I worked for who lived in Pasadena talk shit about neighborhoods like your lawns are very, very green and watered there. I just feel like you're hating on poor people that you don't understand that a huge chunk of the valley are people of color and everyone is poor. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, like, it feels really fucking like. It's really shitty. It's very slant in terms of what you're saying or like you are getting to a point but skipping some steps to get there. Mm-hmm. It feels weird and people feel really weird about how they talk in the valley. People don't even want to define what the valley is like. Apparently, we don't live in the valley, depending on who we talk to, because I think people don't want to be associated with being there because it's poor, even though we totally are in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. I don't understand the city's relationship with, like, success or status that still permeates. I mean, I guess I should. I don't know. It's obvious. It's Los Angeles. Fucking duh. But, like, I don't personally understand it. I'm very much a Randy in that sense. Yeah. It's, like, very frustrating sometimes because, like, there are people that we know that, like, just do not come to this part of the city. They just don't. I mean, driving's annoying. Well, yeah. Driving sucks. Like, that's for sure. But, like, they just straight up don't come over to this part of the city. And it's like, yeah, okay, we live really close to a mall. Like, very close to a mall. But at the same time, like, the neighborhood that surrounds that mall, like, it's not white people. Like, mm-hmm. it just isn't. And that's where we live. And I'm very happy to live where we live. Um, Yeah, I, I don't get it. I also, in a weird way, like, also don't care. Like, if somebody's going to be like, oh, I can't visit you. You live in the valley. Then I don't want to be friends with you. Like, oh, go fuck yourself. People, abs- people who lived in, like, Silver Lake tried to dunk on where I live. And I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> it's just weird to see people just be like, oh, no, I don't like that neighborhood. Or I think that neighborhood's been gentrified. And it's like, all of Los Angeles has been gentrified. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's 
weird. It's super weird. But I don't know. And I like the thing that you said earlier about how this specific like time period of Los Angeles is the one that you romanticize. Cause I definitely feel like I do too. Like I feel that way every time I go to the new Bev because the new Bev like still feels like old, like, mm-hmm. but not like old Hollywood, like mm, old Hollywood, look at the Paramount sign. Like not yeah. like that kind of old Hollywood, but it like. It feels lived in. It's not been yeah. updated. Much to the detriment of my bad back because the new bed still has porno theater seats that are designed for skinny people on coke yeah, from the 70s. My fucking hips don't fit um, in those goddamn chairs. I, I like visiting the new bev. I don't like actually being in the new bev because it's physically uncomfortable. <laughs> um, that said, uh, I saw Angel and Avenging Angel at the new bev last time I was there and um, I got really emotional. Emotional because I love it so much and one day we're going to do the sequel to that movie and I can talk about how I love this period of dirty Los Angeles so much. <laughs> yeah, same. I'm a big, a big fan of it. This is what we call living on the edge. You don't have places like this in the valley, do you? No, we're just not into loving it. So what do you do over there that's hot? We go to normal parties. Go to normal places. Buy nice new clothes. So different from what we do. It's the way we do things that makes the difference. Yeah. Guess so. You know, like these guys all look sick or something. You gotta look healthy with a can. You won't catch anything here. This is the real world. It's not fresh and clean like a television show. So as we're sort of wrapping things up, it is very important that Valley Girl is yet another movie that actually does end at prom. Ends at prom. I I don't know if people realize that the name of this show was designed to be like, oh, yeah, because all of these movies end at prom. And they really don't. A lot of them do, a lot of them not do. a lot of them do. A lot of them end at like winter formals and homecomings or just mm-hmm. don't have a dance. They just have house parties. Yeah. In my brain, when like, when we were all just like, oh no, that's brilliant. It's I like, feel like prom though is like, prom is a state of mind. Because prom even- Prom is a state of mind. Yeah. Because like I think about like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that's like a senior dance or Wish Upon a Star, which is a winter formal or like, you know, whatever. It's just like, the energy of It's prom. just the energy. Or even if it is like the big house party, even if it's a birthday party, like they all have that same like momentum momentous the milestone end, the end of end. something yeah it's the party before graduation, graduation. yeah, yeah. No, it all sense. it all feels the same way so so we have that here um i think we talked about this recently about how i miss when there were bands that would play at proms yeah we talked movies. about that last week for wish upon a star yeah i just big fan especially because you got josie cotton i love josie cotton so much with her like Elizabeth Taylor in the Flintstones makeup in but, this. But uh, make it punk. But make it punk. She's so fucking like, cool. Her backup singers are like, they look like they rolled out of bed and like, it looks so hot while doing it. I think mm-hmm. that they're so cool. Um, I, Josie Cotton, by the way, still gorgeous, still doing stuff. Yeah. I think she is the most rad woman. I'm obsessed. Still like posting selfies with John Waters on her Instagram. She's so what a bad cool. bitch. She's I love Josie Cotton. <laughs> I'm so glad she's here. Um, I love that she plays Johnny Are You Queer at a prom. <laughs> it's great. And also like, okay, 
Johnny, are you queer? Sometimes people are like, this song is so homophobic and offensive. It's not. She doesn't give a shit that he's queer. She just wants to know just if she's nice wasting her time. Yeah, it's just like, I'm not going to like flirt with you or try to do whatever. Like, be honest with yourself. Like, I don't want to go put you through a traumatic experience of having sex with a woman if you're really not into that. Exactly. Um, okay. So <laughs> she's a true ally. She is, but she actually is. <laughs> but she actually is, um, like in real life. I fucking love Josie Cotton. So the origin of Johnny, are you queer has a significantly less uh, coy, playful approach. Um, so it was lifted from a Fear song, and Fear is like the band that did uh, "I Don't Care About You," "Fuck You," and like Beef Baloney, which mm-hmm. Fear is basically the dumbest, most one-dimensional punk band, and like that's their appeal, and I'm kind of into that. But it was a song about like get me a beer, and like the lyric is like calling someone a queer. Like it's way more upfront about it. It's mm-hmm. not playful. Mm-hmm. I think like repurposing it into like this song for like a female led band is way better. And also, if I recall correctly, the legend goes that they settled the rights to uh, who actually owns this song with a coin toss. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. <laughs> Which is the most punk thing imaginable. But like Josie Cotton's so cool. I just I love that she gets to shine in this in this spotlight that a lot of like the new wave women didn't get to. Um, mm-hmm. Like everyone always talks about Joan Jett, but you don't get to bring up. Josie Cotton or The Waitresses mm-hmm. or Holly and the Italians, which um, I j- another reason to shout out Holly and the Italians. Go, go listen to their debut album. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. But it's this like specific kind of bratty, snotty level of defiance that fits Bratty perfectly. defiance. Totally. It fits with the valley in a way that I love so much. And you don't see it very often because once we get to the 90s, the, the, the kind of defiant bratty attitude we got is way more in your face. It's like Riot Girl. It's like, fuck you. It's energy. It's angsty. It's mad. This one is more playful I feel I, in like, a way that I really like. I, feel I like, like both, but. I feel like this brattiness that kind of happens from this era is what would eventually lean into kind of the music that we would get for like 10 Things I Hate About You and Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. Like it's that kind of it's, it's like got letters to Cleo. It, it's, the attitude is what makes it defiant, not the music. Yeah. The music is like a lot of times it's ska. So it's, like it's, it's fun and it's poppy. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, like there is definitely like a, like a Donna's-esque like yeah, fuck you attitude. Exactly. But it's bratty but like it's, it's still really fun. really fun to listen to and it's accessible and it's also unapologetically very fucking femme yeah which i think is really really cool because riot girl feels like cool girls that could absolutely kick your ass right riot girl was a mix of you know it's a mixed bag obviously in hindsight that mostly people have come around to them but it was like no we're not going to be girls like, yes the idea is like i don't know courtly love wore baby doll dresses but like she's fucking messy and doesn't look femme she looks like a disaster and that's the appeal and like i like that mm-hmm. but also i love this part too and we don't get this part yeah where this anymore. part is like i have a full face of like untouchable like full beat makeup i'm wearing like really sexy girly clothing and i'm singing about how like i fucking can't stand you yeah. i love that energy that shit is so cool i'm a huge fan like this whole soundtrack um, it did not get a proper release. I think the UK got a version mm-hmm. um, that is very expensive that uh, has like, I think it's like a 10 track version of it. Um, Valley Girl didn't, it should it should be the best 80s soundtrack of all time, but it's not. It's just because rights issues. They it, didn't have the money for that shit. Exactly. Because all of these bands blew up on MTV after the movie actually start after the when the movie would, would have been released. Yeah. Apparently, I Melt With You was included because Martha Coolidge heard it on, I think, K-Rock, like heard it on the radio and yes. was like, oh, I love this song. Can I have it? And they were like, yeah. And then MTV happened and it was like, this song is huge. So, so here's the fun thing about I Melt With You that I want to talk about is that um, that song is not a hit. It's, it's regarded by many people, certainly of this decade. I remember VH1 did like a 
100 greatest one-hit wonders of the 80s, and that's also where I learned about Johnny Are You Queer, I think. But it's uh, it's frequently listed as one of the best one-hit wonders of the decade or of all time, and I think it stalled at it like 80 on the charts. Like, it did right. not do well, and it was released on this, like, little British label of, like, goth kids, like, like Bauhaus-style goth music. Like, it should not have been poppy or accessible like this, and yet it's so good. And they played the whole thing. Like, they are so committed to how good this song is. It's the credits music, and it is, like, the many dates montage, and it's the most romantic shit you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Oh. And, like, even, like, there's, the like, the minor key sort of breakdown where, like, oh, no, Tommy's in the frame. And it's like, no, fuck Tommy. We're going back to, like, the NBC jingle immediately. <laughs> and, it's, <laughs> and it's great. I love it. Yeah. The soundtrack to this movie is pretty incredible and I do think adds to the film's legacy because – if you talk about Valley Girl, one of the first things that is brought up is like, oh my God, but the soundtrack though. Mm-hmm. Like people bring that up so quickly because it's that good. And I think that's why when they remade this and turned it into a jukebox musical, that makes sense. Like yeah. that feels like the natural like evolution of Valley Girl because you kind of can't remake this movie without it being a period piece. Oh no. And remaking it as a period piece in like the 2020s where you're not changing anything would have been a waste. So making it a musical like that. It feels redundant. Yeah. Did did, did Angst in My Pants by by Sparks make the music? I don't know. I got to rewatch it. (laughs) I got to rewatch it because I wasn't actually like really paying attention to that. I would love to see someone trying to pull off like a jukebox musical version of Sparks. Like that's so, that that would be a sight. I'm sure it didn't, but I would love it. It would be super weird considering how much of their music doesn't sound like any of their music. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I do recommend the Valley Girl remake with Jessica Roth. Like, we'll talk about it at some point. Um, I mean, Ruby Modine's in that too, and that's always good. She's, I like her a lot. Um, so there's there's good stuff going on there. But Valley Girl, and, and something that I do want to say, and I'm not going to give it a lot of air, there are people who really don't like this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that in Teen Movie Hell, there is an additional essay that's like, counterpoint, I fucking hate this movie. They end their essay by saying the soundtrack sucks too. And I'm like, yeah, and it's like, nope, ex- you're done. Excuse me. <laughs> I dis- I disagree with everything you are saying. Uh, and I have many thoughts about it. Um, but like, I think judging this movie, which is also a thing that we try to do in general, but specifically when we approach an 80s movie is... To know how good a movie is, you kind of have to judge it for what kind of movie it is. Right. Like, when you look at all of the other, like, I don't know, Surf School or Johnny's Dick Adventure or whatever the fuck any of the Johnny's other- Dick Adventure. I don't know, man. Someone greenlight that immediately. <laughs> I need to see to think- what movie becomes Johnny's Dick Adventure. That, that's probably a porn. But it's like, I'm just trying to think of like, when you, when you judge this movie, you have to judge it. For a 1983, would have been made in 1982, teen film in the landscape of sex comedies. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it against its contemporaries, it's unreal how good it is. Also, because I had to know. Johnny sex, Johnny's dick adventure. Johnny's dick adventure does not exist, but there is uh, Johnny, would you love me if my dick were bigger? And it is a book that is apparently quite good. Huh. Well, there you go. There you I know go. nothing about that book, so I'm not going to give it a proper shout. But if you're curious. <laughs> yeah, I know. We have no idea. It could be terrible. It could be great. Who knows? Yeah. So with all of that out of the way, Harmony, the time has come. Valley Girl is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? Or are you buying her a ticket so she can go on her own? If you couldn't tell by the fact that I was like kind of enthusiastically screaming into the mic this whole episode, 
I'm a big fan of this movie. Um, I, and the thing is, I didn't, I don't remember having a specific fondness for it. I thought I was like, oh no, it's all right. Mm-hmm. But like, I really like rewatching it in 2023. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the few things that has given me joy this year. <laughs> <laughs> like I felt something and I, I like that. Um, no, it's, it's a yes. It's, 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 a, it's a marvelous film. I think... Weirdly enough, the TV edit might be slightly better because it cuts out some of the unnecessary stuff of the film, but then you don't get Nicolas Cage going, fuck you! He's, like, so Italian when he says fuck you. It's amazing. And, like, I just love an era before we are introduced to Cage Rage because it's such a subdued anger compared to what we know he's capable of. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. It's such a delight. And I also had this realization as we were having this conversation is that this month, uh, because we did Harold and Maude on the Patreon for the Sadie Hawkins dance. And then we also did this. We did two of our nephew Cash's like favorite teen movies, like back to back. So uh, that's our gift to you, bud. We love you. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has a podcast called Ceramic Cat. If uh, it is. Oh my God. Way less structured than what we do. If but you want to like, a... you know, listen to something that is the audio equivalent of being cursed. Oh, it's like, uh, it's like listening <laughs> to clickhole. Yeah. <laughs> listening to clickhole or like lull to random madness. Uh, you can listen to that on the Jabroni U network. It's. It's a lot. It's something. Yeah. So yeah, no, Valley Girl's tight. If you have issues with this movie. That's fair, but I think that there's a, a plenty more going on in this thing, especially because the characters are so blank mm-hmm. that you can read into it as much as you feel like it. Absolutely. This and I movie think that's is, how it works. This movie is as deep as you want it to be, mm-hmm. and I those are my favorite types of movies, especially ones from the 80s. Yeah, and also, any movie where I get to see E.G. Daly just be hot and cool, mm-hmm. like, she is so pretty and so charming, and yet she has made a career not being in front of the camera. That is wild to me. Well, luckily, Rob Zombie understood and has put her in a lot of his latter films. Um, unfortunately, they are films that I don't consider to be his best work. Mm-hmm. Um, but there definitely are people who love those but movies. She looks so She's cool. so hot in 31. She looks what so the hell? Cool. <laughs> she's like in her 50s in a fucking American flag bikini, like she's Myra Breckenridge. Oh my God, it's amazing. Huge, huge thumbs up. Big yep. fan. She's Too awesome. Too enthusiastic thumbs up. She's totally awesome. <laughs> Well, friends, I think that takes us out on Valley Girl. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at The Sunset Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title for our theme song. I am so excited to hear what band you are recommending based on Valley Girl. I mean, aside from the fact that everyone should just go listen to the debut Holly and the Italians album because I keep telling them to because you have to go out of your way for it because it's buy, not on Spotify. You have to buy the physical version because it's never on streaming. Um, do that. But also, in addition to that, I'm shouting out the Death Valley Girls. Oh, Death Valley Girls. So Death Valley Girls, if if you're familiar with similar movies to me, they're the band that is playing in uh, the movie Bit and they're super cool. Mm-hmm. They actually just released a new set of songs like early February Mm -hmm. and uh, no like Death Valley Girls all their stuff is good they've been kicking around Southern California for like like 10 years They've, Mm -hmm. they've been at it for a while but like they've got new songs like Magic Powers and What Are the Odds that capture like the sort of bratty new wave vibes of a Josie Cotton that I love so much. Mm-hmm. And so I fully recommend checking out all their stuff if you want more more of that. Beautiful. All righty. Thank you as always for listening. We will see you next week and don't forget, save that last dance for us. Bye. Fuck. 
This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.